So this evening I'd like to speak about the cultivation of spaciousness. I'd like to begin by reading you something from the Bhagavad Gita. It says, it teaches us that even as the wonder of the stars in the heavens only re- is only revealed in the silence of the night, so too the wonder of life reveals itself in the silence of the, of the heart. In the silence of our hearts, we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe bound by love. Now I'm going to take some liberty with this translation change it slightly just to suit the talk. Teach us that even as the wonder of the stars only reveals itself in the vastness of the sky, so too the wonder of this life reveals itself only in the spaciousness of our heart. In the spaciousness of our heart, we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe connected and liberated by understanding. Spaciousness is something which has become increasingly meaningful to me in my own life and my own practice. And it's something which I find myself increasingly trying to communicate, the the way in which spaciousness really plays such a central central role in this practice and really has the power actually to transform us in very powerful ways. And I'm sure you can uh, at least relate to the possibility that we can go through this life too often in a very contracted state. You know, with a very contracted mind, a very contracted heart, a very contracted body. And I'm imagining that this is not a totally alien experience to anyone. And we do have glimpses of spaciousness too. You know, and I I sometimes feel like even in a retreat when, when we can feel so at times so tight and so contracted that there's something so lovely and so powerful about just stepping outside the door and opening your eyes and looking out over the hill and just having that sense of expansiveness and how it can lighten and ease that feeling, uncomfortable, painful feeling of contractedness. And I don't feel that spaciousness has to be just a lucky accident that we stumble across. I feel it's a practice, it's a cultivation, it's a landscape almost that we teach ourselves and reteach ourselves to be familiar with to such a degree perhaps that we can really sense it as our home. And as a practice, you know, not only here, but in our lives. It is, a, it is an art. It's about learning to surround all things, inwardly and outwardly, with a quality of inclusiveness, allowing, befriending. In many ways, it, it's so much the, at the heart of mindfulness. 
And it is that sense of spaciousness that really allows us to, to see more deeply, to see beneath the surface of things, to feel more at ease in this life. Now, I, I do feel that we, when we hear the word spaciousness, we can feel a very strong sense of attraction. We would all love to feel more spacious. But at the same time, we can be a little bit puzzled by the word. You know, what does it mean? What does it, what does it look like? And more importantly, how do we get it? Or how do we get there? I mean, first, just briefly, without dwelling on it too much, I think it's very important to really know the distinction between spaciousness and spaciness. They are certainly not the same. Spaciousness doesn't, it isn't shapeless. It doesn't mean being unfocused. You know, spaciousness does not mean, it's not an invitation to wander around in a deluded, dull fog of distractedness. I mean, I think this quality and that experience we can probably know too well. And we also know it's not spaciousness because it's actually, when you sort of look at the landscape, the texture of spaciness, it's a, it's a pretty unpleasant experience. It, it's that feeling of being governed and pushed around by whatever thought or by whatever mental state or whatever event is predominant in the moment. It's a feeling of being lost and disconnected and confused. Spaciousness is something very different. And I'd also like to suggest that spaciousness is not an it. You know, it's not a kind of experience to be strived for or gained. It's essentially about changing the lens through which we see. It's about changing the lens through, how, through which we attend to life, the lens of how we are present in all the changing moments of our minds and lives. And I feel spaciousness has within it this quality of such profound balance and poise that there's no longer that experience of just being governed or swept away by the inner and outer events of life. But at the same time, within spaciousness is that freedom to respond, the freedom to bring to this moment whatever it needs. And it's not so much, perhaps, a special experience. But in my understanding, it's probably the most natural way to be in this world. And it's born of understanding. It's born of understanding the ways that we become contracted, the ways that we find ourselves tightening, isolating. It's about being awake. Now, in a lot of ways, in my understanding, spaciousness is not really born of what we get or what we attain, 
but it's kind of more born of what falls away and what we allow to fall away. And I'll read you just a little story some of you may know. It's a little bit of a description of this. So the poor man had come to the end of his rope, so he went to the rabbi for advice. Holy rabbi, he cried, things are in a bad way with me and getting worse all the time. We're poor, so poor, that my wife, my six children, my in-laws and I live in a one-room hut. We get in each other's way all the time. Our nerves are frayed, and because we have plenty of troubles, we quarrel. Believe me, my home is a hell, and I'd sooner die than continue living this way. The rabbi pondered the matter gravely. My son, he said, promise to do as I tell you, and your condition will improve. I promise, Rabbi answered the troubled man. I'll do anything you say. Tell me, what animals do you own? I have a cow, a goat, and some chickens. Very well, go home now and take all these animals into your house to live with you. The poor man was dumbfounded, but since he'd promised the rabbi, he went home and brought all the animals into his house. The following day, he returned to the rabbi and cried, Rabbi, what a misfortune you've brought upon me. I did as you told me and brought the animals into the house, and now what have I got? Things are worse than ever. My life is a perfect hell. The house is turned into a barn. Save me, rabbi. My son replied the rabbi serenely, Go home and take the chickens out of your house. God will help you. So the poor man went home and took the chickens out of his house. But it wasn't long before he again came running to the rabbi. Holy rabbi, he wailed, help me, save me. The goat is smashing everything in the house. She's turning my life into a nightmare. Go home, said the rabbi gently, and take the goat out of the house. God will help you. The poor man returned, removed the goat. But it wasn't long before he again came running to the rabbi, lamenting, what a misfortune you brought upon my head, my head, rabbi. The cows turned my house into a stable. How can you expect a human being to live side by side with an animal? You're right, a hundred times right, agreed the rabbi. Go straight home and take the cow out of your house. And so the poor unfortunate hastened home and took the cow out. Not a day had passed before he again came to the rabbi. Rabbi, cried the poor man, his face beaming. You've made my life sweet again for me. With all the animals out, the house is so quiet, so roomy, so clean. What a pleasure. So I guess I'd like to ask you to think about what you might be taking out of your house during this retreat. What can you take out of your house? What would allow your house, the house of your mind, the house of your heart, to feel that much more spacious, that much more calm. Now I want to give you a few examples about spaciousness because it, it's not easy just to think about as a concept and I don't want you to think about it as a concept. I want you to think about it as something that you can explore and play with. Now take coming into this room you know, when, when you walk into this room, notice how often your attention is drawn to all the things in the room. You know, the fans, the people, the bell, us, the cushions. And notice when you, you kind of focus on the things in the room. 
how a kind of waterfall of preferences, of likes and dislikes, arguments, can be stimulated by the things in the room. You know, why don't they have the same color cushions? You know, it's not the right kind of chair. Why did they paint the wall that color? You know, how easily the mind starts to do its dance around all the things in the room. Now, suppose you were just to come into the room and make just a slight adjustment in your focus, the lens through which you see. And notice the space in the room. Just notice the space in the room, that the space that surrounds everything, that makes room for everything. And how the space in the room really doesn't have an argument with anything in it, doesn't worry about anything in it. And how the space in this room is not even confined by the walls, but it's the same space beyond the walls. It really doesn't have any boundaries. Now, sometimes we suggest in the practice that you bring your attention to listening, to hearing. And if you notice that when we suggest that, or when you do that, how almost automatically we begin to to look for something to listen to. It's like we're searching for the sound to listen to. And we usually find some. And the same process can begin. You know, we like some sounds, we dislike other sounds. Some we wish they'd stay a little longer, you know, the lovely bird. Others we wish they'd go away. Now again, what would it be to listen without seeking a sound? And some people will say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, if I'm going to listen, I have to have something to listen to. But maybe it does make sense. When we just rest in listening without preferences, we sense the silence from which all the sounds arise and pass away again. The silence doesn't have any argument with any of the sounds. The sounds arise and pass from the silence. As sometimes we give you the encouragement in the practice to be mindful of your breathing. Mindful of breathing in, mindful of breathing out, mindful of the pause. Now have you noticed how easy it is to tie yourself in knots around that simple instruction. You know, is it the right way to breathe? You know, we become the breather. You know, I'm waiting for the breath. You know, I'm on top of the breath. Should I feel it here? Should I feel it there? But we can also learn just to rest. Rest within the breathing and let the breath breathe itself. Chogram Chogram Trungpa, a a Tibetan teacher some time ago, he once came into the meditation room and he held up a very large piece of light blue paper. And he encouraged everybody to kind of associate around it. And and, and then he said, what do you think it is? And a lot of folks in the room said, well, it's the sky. It's the sky. 
And then he drew on the piece of paper a kind of uh, V on its side. And again, he asked people to associate around it. And they said, well, what is it? What do you think it is? And a lot of people said, well, it's a bird. And he said, no, it's a sky with a bird in it. It's a sky with a bird in it. It's a big difference between those two. Now, I'd like to invite you just to reflect on the nature of your mind today. And what, what's your mind been like today? What's your heart been like today? And I think we can often feel that our mind just feels so full. You know, this waterfall of memories, ideas, preoccupations, images, thoughts. Now, what is it that allows you to know that that's happening? How do you know that that's happening? It's, it's, it is your capacity to be aware. It's your capacity to see, to capacity to know. But have you noticed within the mind, just like coming into this room, how easily our attention gets really sucked into the contents of the mind. We start building around them, isolating, arguing. And what is it like, again, to step back from that busyness and to rest in the seeing and the knowing, the awareness that doesn't have any preferences? I want, when I'm going to give you a lot of examples of this in the talk. Just, just the awareness has no preferences, just like the space in the room doesn't have a prefer green cushions over blue cushions. What we see is the thoughts, the ideas, the memories, they are rising and passing in the seeing. That's what we call spaciousness, not holding anywhere. It's expansive, it's inclusive, it's present. Now spaciousness, I would suggest, is something we cultivate, but it's also born really, really of understanding this opposite state of contractedness. Rather than just wanting contractedness to go away because it's unpleasant, to understand what it is. I would also suggest that to cultivate spaciousness, you don't have to be an expert meditator. It is a practice of immediacy, of knowing that possibility in every moment to be able to shift from being lost in the particulars, the contents, to stepping back into the space around it. We can do this in any moment. Now, here's an example. So, a thought arises. You know, maybe you're sitting today, you know, and you're feeling, you know, fairly okay, and then you have this memory of this awful argument you had with someone before you came. And the thought arises, the memory arises, and you can see immediately how that thought gets charged with feeling and anxiety and history. And you can see that inclination, can't you, to dive right into it and to feel really pretty imprisoned. I mean, the argument's still going on. The other person's on vacation in Florida, but here we are, we are still in the argument. We become lost. Now, it's not intentional. We'd really rather not be doing that. Huh? But it's like it's, it's a habit. 
we begin to associate and build around that argument. You know, we've already preparing what we're saying when we next see that person. You know, we, we get completely contracted around it. Now, notice what happens when you do that, when you dive into the content. How, you know, the sense of your body, you know, listening. I mean, there could be <coughs> a symphony playing outside the window and you probably wouldn't even hear it. The sense of the body starts to disappear, hearing starts to disappear, all starts to fade away. Now, what would happen in that moment if, if we were aware enough to begin to reconnect and reclaim all of that which is starting to fade away? So we step outside of the argument, we come, ah, here's the body sitting. What does that feel like? We step outside of the argument, ah, listening. Ah, what is that like? What is it like just to listen in that moment? Now what we're not doing, we're not pushing the difficult thought away, it's still present, but it's arising and being present in the landscape of the whole of the moment, huh? rather than being the only thing present in the moment. Now, a different example, we're sitting and a sound arises. It may be pleasant or it may be unpleasant. Today, there's lots of pleasant sounds because it's Sunday. So there's lots of birds. Come Monday, the garbage trucks come, the delivery vehicles come. You have many opportunities to practice with other kinds of sounds. But notice if you start to isolate or fix upon a sound, again, how exactly the same thing is happening as happened with the thought of the argument. You start to narrow the awareness. You start to shrink the awareness. Huh? I don't know what kind of bird that was, you know, and next time I come on retreat, I'm bringing my binoculars and my bird book, and I want the sitting to be over so I can go and see if I can find this bird. Now, again, the whole thing, the rest of our sensory awareness is kind of disappearing. If it was a more unpleasant sound, you know, who allowed that garbage truck on the side? It's disturbing my awareness. I wonder if they sell earplugs. And again, that same floodgate opens huh? of feelings, thought, memories. Now, what we are experiencing in those examples is the process of contractedness. Huh? It's that tightening a narrowing of awareness. It's a kind of shrinking of vision in which spaciousness is sacrificed. Now, I'd really like you to get a feel for this hmm? because we often get lost in that sense of contractedness and feel like there's no way out. But of course, to find the way out, we also need to understand how we got in. This is what we call insight meditation. <laughs> We're actually understanding how we got in because in there, there is the key for actually how to step out of that contractedness. To get a felt sense of the nature of contractedness, how it's often resisting, defending, anxious, tense, it's actually sometimes it's briefly entertaining you know, like we can be briefly entertained by the argument or the fantasy about the bird, but then you notice it doesn't feel like you have a choice to stop being entertained. 
and you, you just feel stuck in it. But it's also important to get a felt sense of spaciousness. And I'd really encourage you to notice this in the day when you walk outside or sometimes you just sit and listen and you feel that inclusiveness of the mindfulness, the inclusiveness of the awareness, the ease of it, because nobody is contracted all the time. You know, and it's kind of like we need to learn to read this landscape of what does spaciousness feel like? What does contractedness feel like? What is suffering? What is not suffering? We're learning to read the landscape of our hearts, the landscape of our minds all the time. Now, it's also, I think, very important not to get too dualistic because we can imagine that somehow spaciousness is going to be born of annihilating everything else, you know, annihilating our thoughts. You know, we, we could imagine that if I didn't think, I'd be really spacious. Well, you know, I'm, I have no interest at all in teaching people not to think. And I don't think this practice has anything to do with not thinking. You know, there is an intelligence in this practice that uses every aspect of our being, including our mind and our capacity and developing our capacity to think well. You know, which means thinking creatively, clearly, with, with depth, and also really just as much as we need to. We're learning that spaciousness is found not outside of the events of our life. Spaciousness is not even necessarily found outside of contractedness. But we could say that every moment of contractedness and tightness is actually a doorway to spaciousness. Now, this, it's also very important to understand there's no blame or judgment about the number of times that we get caught in the dramas, the fabrications, the events, the thoughts. There's no judgment, no blame in it. But it's also recognizing that we can wake up. You know, and, and so much of mindfulness is really an antidote to habit, and particularly the emotional, psychological habits that actually make us suffer. And one of the biggest emotional, psychological habits is the habit of contractedness. But we can wake up. And waking up and stepping out of contractedness, I think, for most of us, involves deeply recognizing that to cling to anything at all, to grasp hold of anything at all, is instantly to increase the amount of torment and pain in our hearts. And the Buddha summed up this teaching, you know, so simply in such a few words, with really the encouragement that nothing at all should be clung to as me or mine. And to know this deeply, is to almost instantaneously feel an increase in the sense of spaciousness. Let me give you an example of this. In, in, in my house where, where I live for quite a long time now, I, I had the most, uh, I, and you notice the language here, I had. There actually grew this most beautiful silver birch tree. You know, it, it was huge, you know, it was, it was like, you know, 40 feet tall. It was, it was like a classic silver birch tree. 
And then I was told that uh, we had to cut it down because the roots of this silver birch tree were going into the sewer pipes, etc., etc. And I noticed that the, mo the, the instant I was informed I had to cut down this silver birch tree, I sort of went into this major psychological tantrum. You know, I mean, I, I did have enough restraint not to do it actually physically or overtly, but inwardly, you know, my arms were crossed, I was stamping my foot, you know, and it was like, no way. And, you know, it was like my tree, <laughs> it was my tree, but actually we were really talking about my clinging. And, you know, fortunately it didn't last too long, and I could see it was like incredibly sad that this birch tree had to come down. But after all, why should this tree be one thing in the world exempt from impermanence? The absence of the tree was going to turn into something else. It certainly wasn't my tree to begin with. And I could feel in myself this shift from kind of wrong view into wise view and feel the shift from this, this place of awful contractedness into a sense of spaciousness. Still sad? Loss is sad. Loss is sad. But the contractedness in my heart was all about my tree. Sadness is different than the my tree being the gatekeeper of my happiness. And the tree did not intrinsically hold the power to be the gatekeeper of my happiness. But the clinging certainly did. Now, one way of seeing our life is, is like a river of causes and conditions. And those causes and conditions began long before we were ever born. You know, if you think back to your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all of who have played a part in the causes and conditions that has led you to be much of what you experience today. Now, those causes and conditions in a way end with our death, but there's other causes and conditions that are born of that. Now, this, this, this event of our life, this event of our life is precious, just as all lives are precious. But we see that we tend to mark our life and to mark our happiness and sorrow by the vast number of events that happen within this framework of our birth and our death. Times of gain, times of loss, times of achievement, times of failure, times of pleasure, times of pain, times of illness, events of health, moments of excitement, events of fear, the things we do, the things we choose not to do. Our mind is often full of all of the events that have already passed and yet to come. And we're often preoccupied with the events of the present. If you look at your mind now, or how it was during the last sitting, you can see there's almost limitless ground for contractedness, for preoccupation. In truth, we could become contracted around anything. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying that preoccupation doesn't end until the moment we doesn't end until the moment we die. 
But preoccupations end when we put them down. This is their nature. Now, in wise understanding, within this river of events we call our life, there's also limitless ground for spaciousness. Now, what is it that makes something into an event? What is it that makes something that we contract around? Now, we can see that the causes and conditions of this moment are changing moment by moment. And, and you know, if we don't see it within ourselves, we look outside. You know, today we had a glorious day. You know, sun was shining, you know, breeze was blowing. There were different conditions configuring together in a certain way. Tomorrow might be different conditions, might rain. It'll be different causes and conditions coming together in a certain way. And we can see that actually it's kind of impersonal what happens with the weather, isn't it? I mean, we can't say we can control it. We can't, you know, say, oh, yes, I, tomorrow is going to be a wonderful day. In a, I mean, none of us can do it. We wouldn't even imagine that we could do that. It's kind of impersonal. In many of the causes and conditions of our lives, we also weren't in control. I mean, I wasn't in control of the kind of body I was born with. You know, I wasn't totally in control of the fact that, you know, uh, at the kind of family I had, with the kind of conditioning I had, the kind of feedback I had. A lot of that, actually, I never chose. You know, it was causes and conditions coming together. But that actually doesn't mean that we're helpless. It doesn't mean that we're helpless. Because we're within this causes and conditions, we're introducing other causes and conditions, like mindfulness, like intention. You know, it took a certain amount of choice for you to get here. Huh? Nobody just ended up here by accident, was driving by, and, you know, kind of just fell onto a cushion. Hey, you know, I'm on a retreat. I mean, it took a certain amount of intentionality for us all to come, right? We weren't helpless. We were not helpless. Some causes and conditions are shaped by clear intention. Others can be shaped by fear by confusion. Now, let's look more specifically at our own lives. Now, most of us actually see ourselves basically as being the center of the universe. I mean, it's something of a delusion, we would all agree, and yet that's kind of how we see it. You know, we're at the center of the universe. I either make things happen or things happen to me. You know, that's kind of it. I mean, we all agree it's foolish, but it's how, how we live. Now, we can see ourselves as actually being so central that it's hard to imagine a life in which we're not the center of the universe. And it's even hard to imagine that because we think then we'd be nobody. You know, if we weren't the center of the universe, what would get us out of bed in the morning? You know, I mean... Why would we come here, you know? What would we do? We'd just be kind of like nobody or nothing, you know? So in a way, we kind of like being the center of the universe. But have we ever looked at what that actually means? What that actually means? And actually, who is the center of the universe? <laughs> you know, who is the center of the universe? <laughs> because if we really look at that, you can actually see that the who is the center of the universe is also an event arising and passing in relationship to other events, isn't it? I mean, you have a pain in your body, I'm suffering. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you have an unhappy thought, I'm unhappy. You know, you have an argument in your mind, I'm in conflict. Eh? I mean, you know, it's kind of constantly changing. It's like an event that is constantly being shaped by other events. That's the who in the center of our universe, which is such a big relief because you can just take it all a little bit less personally. You can just take it all a little bit less personally. But you can also see how much suffering comes when we're, we're not looking at that and we're clinging to it and saying, this is me. You know, this is mine. Now, I want to look at the, give you an example about this. Now, events are made by isolating certain configurations of conditions. But I want to give you an example. Now, we obviously don't have a whole lot of events here on retreat, outwardly anyway. But we have lunch. We have lunch. It's a big event. <laughs> it's a big event. You know, it feels like a big event, doesn't it? Now, so we can kind of, you know, kind of gear ourselves up for lunch. And then you get to the table or you look on the board and they're serving something you don't like. And you can feel the response almost immediately rising up through your body, this whole wave of unhappiness. And this unhappy self creates time, past, present, future. We lean back into the past and we remember all the times we've been unhappy, all the miserable lunches we've been made to eat in our lives. And we start leaning into the future. We imagine all the future lunches. We imagine all the unhappiness that is yet to come to us. That's what we call contractedness around an event. You know, it's sometimes said in this practice, there is no next. There is no next. There is just this. We can just rest in the knowing, in the seeing. There's another example. Okay, sometimes sittings can feel kind of long. I'm sure you've had that thought. And have you ever done that thing, you know, you used to surreptitiously looking down at your watch, you know, how much time is there left in the sitting, you know. And, and you see, oh gosh, you know, there's, a, there's only five minutes left in the sitting. I'm so happy, you know. <laughs> oh no, there's still 20 minutes to go, you know. I'm so unhappy. What do you think is coming next? Walking. <laughs> 20 minutes to go in <laughs> oh, only five minutes left to go what comes next sitting <laughs> if you you know if you just say, what is happening through all those changes right your mind is still thinking your body is still breathing having sensations there's still sounds do we think there's a different mind in here waiting for us on the cushion or maybe a different mind out there waiting for us on the walking path we start, we start to create an event, a, a, an event out of the contra in the contractedness. Now, that is actually quite a lot of suffering, isn't it? It's actually quite a lot of suffering. It's good to know that. You know, we may still look at our watch, five minutes, 20 minutes. Actually, we know what comes next. Same body, same mind, same thoughts same possibility of becoming very contracted, same possibility of finding a lot more spaciousness. 
just relaxing into where we are, including the sense of contractedness or impatience or enough or frustration or judgment. It doesn't matter. Just relaxing into the scene of it. And perhaps we can find ourselves connecting with that sense of ease, a calm amidst this, this river of events we call our life. Then perhaps we re- actually really begin to live the life we wish to live. You know, then perhaps we really begin to live the peace we wish to experience. Maybe we begin to live the calm we hope for and wish for, not in some next, but right where we are in the midst of all the changing conditions. I mean, in a way, I do think spaciousness is the art of resting in eventlessness. You know, not contracting around anything, not freezing anything in that flow, in that river of conditions. Learning to attend, learning to calm, learning to be mindful of our minds. When we expand our view, what we really start to see moment to moment is this teaching. We begin to see the Four Noble Truths. You know, we begin to see what pain and unsatisfactory is, and we begin to see how it's born. And this too isn't to be clung to as me or mine. Sometimes pain is pain, just like calm is calm. We see that sometimes conditions are outside of our control. Bodies do get sick. Minds can be uh, distracted. Hearts can be broken. But we can also see how much we compound that through contractedness and how we might be able to step into a greater sense of spaciousness just to soften the me and the mine a little bit. To be here with kindness, with compassion. And to read you something from Ajahn Chah to end with. He said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. The world will come and go in that stillness. This is the happiness of a Buddha. We have just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.